None of the content on this or any episode of the Kratom Science Podcast, Kratom Science Journal Club, or on any page of KratomScience.com is intended, nor should it be considered medical claims or medical advice. This is the Kratom Science Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Gallagher, blog and social media writer for KratomScience.com. Your source for all things Kratom. Bridget Williams was born with cerebral palsy. At 16, she was homeless on the streets of New York City and addicted to heroin. Decades after getting clean and working in harm reduction, Bridget discovered Kratom, which she uses to treat severe chronic pain. She now lives in Mississippi, where the right to consume Kratom is being threatened. This is Bridget Williams, and this is her Kratom story. Right before I got thrown out of my house, I was at a boarding school, a therapeutic boarding school, which were all the rage in the late 70s, all through the 80s and early 90s for, you know, troubled kids. And um, I went to a therapeutic boarding school called the DeSisto School. And you can look it up on Wikipedia if you want um, in, in the Berkshires in Stockbridge, Massachusetts. That's where I actually met my my current significant other i met him when i was 13 in 1987 and i left the school in 1991 and we lost contact for 25 years um but when i left the school and i ended up back in new york city with my mother i was with her for maybe two weeks i'd gotten a job i wasn't out all night partying i was home at 10 o'clock at night after work and after about 10 days of me being there and doing, I thought pretty well, I mean, for 16, um, she decided that she didn't want me there. And so she was like, yeah, I just, I don't think I want you here. You need to go. And that's how I ended up homeless. So where are you, where are you from originally? New York city. I I was, I was born and raised in Manhattan. I was born in New York hospital in Manhattan. And you said you were disabled since birth. Correct. I was born with what they call uniplegic cerebral palsy. I have cerebral palsy, but only on the right side of my body. So my left side is perfectly normal, maybe even slightly overdeveloped because it's doing 75% of the work for my entire body. Um, I do have some limited mobility and motor skills on my right side. It's actually I've, it's lessened since I've gotten the, the rheumatoid arthritis and gotten less and less and less, especially since that started. Um, I had a heel cord shortening when I was two years old and they, they overcorrected. So basically what ended up happening is that my heel doesn't touch the floor when I walk. I end up walking on the front and the side of my right foot. I do have a slight limb, um, but I can walk. You know, so a lot of people with cerebral palsy are generally quadriplegic or or, or biplegic on the if if they are on the bottom half, they can't walk. Um, There's only, I think, less than 5000 people in the world with with my type of uniplegic cerebral palsy. It's very rare. I know one other girl and she lives in Australia. Wow. Wow. Yeah, my mom my mom was an alcoholic. She drank she drank through the pregnancy. She fell during the pregnancy twice. I was you know, laying on the umbilical cord. I ended up with the umbilical cord wrapped around my throat. They put her in the hospital for 2 months before I was due to be born. They allowed her to have a drink a day in the hospital to keep both her and I from going into alcohol withdrawal. 
Yeah. Because in 1973, they, they didn't have the same kind of medicines that they do now. Yeah. If it was now, it would be different. Um, they did an emergency C-section on December 25th, 1973. I was born at 10 a.m. The, the doctors basically said to my father, don't bother getting her a social security number or birth certificate for at least two or three months because we don't know if she's going to survive. Um, wow. And my actual original birth certificate says February 1974 on it. I guess my dad waited a little bit and then decided, eh, what the heck, I'm going to get her one. Wow. So th that's my story. My mother was a model. Um, she did mostly fitting work, but she did one print ad for Max Factor back in the late 50s. She was huh. discovered at 16 on Bell Boulevard in Queens. She was born in Ireland and came over here at 12. My wow. father had a great career in, in football. He actually played for the 49ers for like a, a year or two before he got injured. And then he went to work for IBM. So that's just quickly my background. Wow. Um, yeah, that's, <laughs> there's a lot. There's already a lot that you sent me and that was a lot more. Um, right. It's, it's but so we can start from basically, I guess, the time that I that I got homeless. That would be where my experience with Kratom is, you know, really become significant to me. You went to the boarding school in Massachusetts. That was how old Correct. were you then? For, for, for almost four years. I, I left at the end of 91. I got there in May of 1987. Obviously, they have high school classes and they have college classes for kids that haven't graduated the therapeutic part yet and still need to continue school. Um, but it's therapeutic. It was based on gestalt therapy. So like we lived in dorms, we had dorm meetings, we were supposed to talk about our issues. They had dorm parents. We were restricted from going home on vacation unless we were, you know, unless we like the entire dorm agreed we could go home and we had a sponsor of one of the faculty that worked at the school. You didn't go home during the summer. You went on summer trips like one summer, two, actually two different summers. I went across country in a bus. First summer was through Canada and back through the United States. And then the second summer was just only in the United States, but we went to different places. The third summer, I went to San Miguel de, de Allende in Mexico and I studied art. And then the fourth summer that I would have been there, I, I, I ran away from the school right after graduation while I was home on vacation. <laughs> I was 13 when I went there, yeah. but they tested me. They sent me to a hospital in Norwalk for two weeks, and they tested me, like, all kinds of IQ tests and psychological tests. And they basically said that I had, I had like, I guess a decently high IQ. And when they recommended me to the school, the doctor wrote a, a letter of recommendation saying, you can test her, but put her in high school classes. I basically, at 13, started as a junior in high school. I did high school for a year and a half. And then the other almost two years that I was at that school, um, I took college courses because they ran out of, of high school credits to give me. Oh, okay. I got tested out of everything previously to that. So, I mean, I guess I did really well in school. But you ended up running away. Right. I ended yeah. up well, because the school was based on the therapeutic thing and you had to graduate based on their like therapeutic standards. Yeah. And it, it, there, I had a lot of problems with the way they ran the school, the, the, the hypocritical system. It was kind of, you know, like, the, the, you know, certain kids got special privileges. Other kids didn't. Yeah. 
I wasn't always exactly a popular kid because of my disability growing up, especially when I was really young. Um, and I got to, they have different levels, level one, two, three, and four, and you have to be level four to graduate. I got to level three and, and I got a really good look, an inside look at the system as a level three. You would have like school jobs. Like my school job was 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 to run maid service. You, every day, two kids would go back to the dorm and uh, somebody called super check would go through and make sure that there was nothing, you know, everything was perfectly clean. And they ding you a point for everything that was wrong. I was the head of that for a while. And I just realized that the school was, while some of the therapy was needed and some of the kids I think really benefited, I think that some of it, there's a group on Facebook. You won't be able to get in or even see it, I don't think. But it's like traumatic experiences from DeSisto. And I'm in there. A lot of kids were traumatized. Mm -hmm. I was sexually assaulted at the school. The kids sexually assaulted me and then ran away that night. You know, there was a lot of issues. So while I think I benefited some and I learned to recognize my own behaviors and I and I learned to, it also gave me, taught me empathy for others and, and how to relate to others on a more personal, empathetic level. And I do appreciate that. I think that because of all of the other stuff that was going on, the headmaster was accused of, you know, inappropriate stuff with some of the boys there. So, mm. and a lot of kids ran away. They used to have these weird punishments where if your dorm decided you did something wrong enough, you could be, you could have your clothes taken away and wrapped in a sheet and put in a chair in the corner. You know, yeah. I mean, they had these crazy punishments and, and it was meant to make you think. You know, like yeah. I, I got in trouble once and I got sent down to the farm. The farm is an actual working farm where they where they have animals like, you know, pigs and chickens and goats and rabbits. And, and you work all day and you have dorm meetings and you don't go to class. That's where my sexual assault happened because the, the, the farm is a co-ed dorm. They put boys in one room and girls in another. So that's when that happened to me, you know, and by the time I ran away, like my parents were like, we've committed you to graduate because the parents went to their own meetings in their own areas. I was just like, I'm not going to graduate this school because they're not going to let me. I'm not popular enough. And the school's costing, you know, my dad's, you know, $70,000 a year. Luckily, IBM paid for most of it. But, you know, I felt like like it was a waste. Yeah. You know, I had done high school. I had already had college courses. I could leave and continue college, you know, afterwards in, in the real world. Yeah. And so I went home on vacation. I got a faculty who was leaving that year. Like he was leaving, you know, basically like right after graduation anyway. And I got him to take my commitment to go home. Because the faculty, if you run away when you go home and the, the faculty member themselves get in trouble if you do something wrong on a vacation. And he was leaving anyway. So I was like, well, if I run away on my commitment to him, they're not going to be able to do much to him because, you know, dude's not going to be here anymore. Mm. You know, like, I don't want to hurt anybody else with my actions. But at the same time, I, I needed to go. Had my mother let me stay? And I had continued working at that little pharmacy job I had found. I would have enrolled in, you know, college, you know, locally. And I would have, like, moved on with my life. 
but my mother was a troubled person herself and was an alcoholic and I guess she 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 said she had gotten used to being able to 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 live alone and she didn't like me infringing on her space. Yeah, I was you just going to ask that, that next just, if you tried to go home. Well, so I went home. Well, here's what happened. I ran away. I went to Chicago. I went to Chicago because I had friends from school who left and lived in Chicago because I knew okay. if I went home and I went to New York or New Jersey or Connecticut or some area like that, my dad would just drop, pick me up and drive me back to school. So, I mean, I took a, I lay basically took the, the Metro and Morris to Grand Central and, and took, you know, and the Port Authority and, and took a bus to Chicago, stayed in Chicago for two months, um, you know, kind of couch surfing type of thing. Hmm. And then, one of the parents kept me there for about a month. They took me in for an entire month. And the mother worked, you know, called my mother every day, you know, working with her, you know, trying to get her to understand that I don't really think your daughter needs that school. You know, she seems really well-spoken and functional and, and intelligent. And I think that if, if y'all just let her come home, you know, she says she just wants to get a job and go to school there. I guess my my father paid for a plane ticket. I went home to New York. My mother and I had never gotten along. My mother idealized in her head when she was pregnant a mini her, a little mini model. <laughs> and while I don't think I'm a bad looking girl, um, I have cerebral palsy. You know, mm -hmm. she used to call my right side my bad side. She made fun of me as a child. She called me cripple. She used oh, to imitate the way I walked. You know, she would get drunk Jeez. and do these things. She was not the nicest person. Yeah. I've since forgiven her for that because I, I don't want to walk around with that kind of hate in my heart because mm. it's just, it's only going to end up hurting me, especially now that she's passed. But, you know, it, it, it does hurt me a little bit to talk about because, it, I mean, you know, your own parent doing that to you is painful. Yeah. Um. So I got home for two weeks. Within four days, I'd found a job in a pharmacy. I was off work at 9.30 at night. I was always home by 9.45. The pharmacy job was a couple blocks away. I never stayed out late. If I went out, you know, for, for lunch with my friends, it was always on my day off in the daytime. And I was, you know, like I tried to be a model child for those two weeks because I really, really wanted that situation to work. Mm -hmm. And she just decided that it didn't work for her. And so she was like, I had gotten paid and I had given her some of my paycheck to help pay for my expenses. And she took the money. And five minutes later, she comes back in my room and she says, you need to go. And I'm like, what do you mean go? She's like, you need to just go elsewhere. She was like, you can't be here. I don't want you here. Um. And I was like, well, can I have my payback then? And, and she was like, no. So um, I, I packed a bag and I left. And um, I, I, I lived in, in a neighborhood called Yorkville in Manhattan, which is the Upper East Side. Um, the next neighborhood bordering it is Spanish Harlem, mm -hmm. right? And so I basically walked up to Spanish Harlem because I knew people. I'd gone to school with ki with kids who had lived all over the area and in Spanish Harlem. And I went up there to try to find who I could find because I had wanted to get some weed, you know, because mm. I, you know, smoked a ton of weed at that point. 
And I ended up running into somebody and, and they were like, you know, I was like, I, I, I want to get high and because I was upset. I'm 16, you know, maybe not the greatest choice in the world, but I don't feel like at 16, it's, 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 it, you know, it, it. anyway, so I, I, I got a bag of heroin that night for $10 and, and I sniffed it. It was the first time I tried it. Um, and then it, it just basically devolved from there. I stayed, I ended up on the street mostly homeless in the neighborhood of the of of alphabet city in the lower east side and i would you know i'd hustle panhandle buscare sometimes i would find somebody who i sort of kind of knew and they'd be like all right you can you know you can sleep up at the top of my city stairs in in my building by the roof just don't let the super catch you or mm-hmm. i'd slept on subway cars i mean it was just your basic typical New York City homeless experience. And that's harrowing, to be honest, especially at that age. I got lucky. I met up with a semi-decent group of people and we would all kind of sleep around each other at night for safety. But being homeless is is it normal people, people who are not homeless, don't see you as human. Mm-hmm. Like they just they either they either pretend that they don't see you. Or they see you as something less than, you know, I remember I went in front of a Israel hospital one day because I was really hungry and I started begging people for food. And, and I said out loud, like really loud. So a bunch of people could hear me because it was like eight in the morning and everybody was going to work. I was like, I don't want any money. I was like, can somebody just give me some food? And finally, one of the workers in the hospital came up to me and said, I have a half a tuna fish sandwich. I'll give you half my sandwich. And I was so grateful for that half a sandwich. And, you know, that kind of, that memory stuck with me. You know? Yeah. Like, like I was, I was sick, you know, like I had been, I had been doing heroin the whole time I was on the street and I was sick. But at that point, I was just so hungry that I didn't want anything else but something to eat. And then finally, like five or six people came up to me and, you know, one guy brought me a coffee and another lady brought me a juice and an apple and a water and stuff. But it took that one woman being selfless and say, I I only have my lunch. I have a tuna fish sandwich, but I'll give you half for for other people to, to kind of get out of their own, you know, heads as they're going to work. And, and see that there's somebody that just wants food. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Anyway, I was on the street. I I ended up um I ended up meeting a guy basically and we became friends and he would come, you know, he would come down and he uh he ended up he lived in New Jersey, but he was working on a job site in that area and he used to pass by every day. And one day he asked, I had a book in my hand, and I, I think it was On a Pale Horse by Piers Anthony. I was just like sitting around the front of this church by 12th street and and second avenue reading a book because why not right it's just a book and so he struck up a conversation with me and after a couple of weeks of him you know taking me out to eat and and you know giving me you know a few dollars here and there you know a couple of times he got my hotel room he he ended up saying you know like why don't you just come stay with me i live across the river in new jersey he was like, he was like, I have a really good construction business. I, I'm a rough carpenter. I do sheetrock and stuff. 
but I'm dyslexic and I have a really hard time with the paperwork. You know, you mm -hmm. seem intelligent enough that you could do my paperwork, my estimates, my payroll, my, 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 my billing, you were know, you still... and, and you could do it well. Were you 16? You were 16 at this point still? At this point, I was, uh, at this point, I was, I think in my tw early 20s, 22, 23. Okay. You know, it was, it was like 1996. I got off this, I got off the street November 27th, 1996, the day okay. after Thanksgiving. I went to stay with this guy in um, North Bergen, New Jersey. And I basically started working for him. And he was like, look, for the first couple of days, he gave me money to go back to the city to, to you know, keep myself from being sick. Mm -hmm. And then we, we discussed it. He was like, well, what do you want to do at this point? And I was like, I was like, I want to get on methadone or, or treatment or something. I was like, I don't want to keep doing this. Mm -hmm. And so put me on a clinic. They wanted to keep me on long term. I insisted on the 30 day program because I knew people on methadone and I knew people on methadone for long term. And, and, and while methadone is a great tool in the short term, I think long term it creates its own issues. Mm -hmm. And I, and I, and I feel that way about Suboxone. I mean, yeah, if I've you're not careful with any substance, you know, even Kratom, there are people who go crazy with it and then, and Absolutely. then complain it's this terrible thing. Yeah. yeah, but you have to do things in moderation. You have to use them with the sense of this is a step to a to to a, a better place. This is not the place that I want to be. You know, my destination. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. If you're using it for drug treatment, I mean, cream's a little different. You know, if it if it keeps people off drugs and they're you know taking what you know a reasonable amount every day and it keeps them from craving more drugs and relapsing fine if people need methadone and suboxone for that i'm also gonna say hey great at least you're not using anymore mm -hmm. but i feel like methadone and suboxone that are pushed so hard by the rehabs are they, they actually can build up into at over time in you you know yeah and I've talked to a few people on this podcast that it has become a problem. The treatment becomes a problem. Was this kind of the start of you getting into uh, exactly. harm reduction? Exactly. So I got, uh, I got on the program. I was on it for a short time. I insisted on doing 30 days. I actually dropped off in 21 days. Um, it wasn't the greatest experience the last week. I basically sat at home and just sort of like dealt with it. Mm -hmm. um, but I was happy that I was off. And then... And then I, I told him, I was like, look, when I'm not doing your paperwork, which really there wasn't enough for it to be a full time, you know, eight hour a day thing anyway. I was like, I want to go back to the Lower East on harm reduction because mm -hmm. that's where I had been getting, you know, my clean works and they would give you sandwiches and socks and yeah. offer people treatment. And it was like a really positive place, you know, place to get HIV tested, mm -hmm. um, we didn't we didn't know about hepatitis C at that point. Well, we did, but there, but it, but you had to be tested by like it was it it was harder to get that test because it was kind of new. HIV was we was easy for the referral. There was a little truck that used to come around on a schedule, and we would set them up with a referral, and, and the truck would come right and park in front of our our little building there on Avenue C, and then later on Allen Street, and people could go get tested. I used to do everything from sitting at the table collecting the used works, the used syringes, 
counting them out and then giving them back the exact same number that they had brought in. So if they brought in 10, they got back 10 plus 10. If they brought back in 50, they got back 50. If they brought back in 100, they got back 100. 10 or less, you got whatever you brought in plus 10. And then we would give them clean water. We would give them clean cottons, clean cookers, ties, alcohol preps. And then um, I also graduated to be able to, go, you know, when someone new came in, walk them through the process, teach them how to safely inject. Teach them, you know, what to do and what not to do, how to keep, you know, their equipment clean themselves, areas that they were injecting clean. And then I'd also be like, I don't know what your your sexual history is, but we have condoms here. We have dental dams. Just take them out of that bin because we wanted to just basically reduce the harm of that lifestyle. I was there for, for, for a bunch of years. I actually have a, a Lower East Side harm reduction card because at that time in the late 90s, if you carried syringes on you and you didn't have that card, that little ID card that they issued, the cops could give you a hard time. But the precincts in that area had a deal with the harm reduction centers. And there's another one in Midtown, another one uptown, that if the person had that card ID on them and they didn't have any syringes with actual illicit substances in them, they were just the clean stuff, they would let them go. And I remember I used to deliver occasionally to this one lady who couldn't get out much. And I had to carry the card on me to bring her stuff. Still have it. It was the late 90s at this point because I was well, I'm right. looking I'm looking at my Solvis's book on my bookshelf right now. And she talked about how uh, that probably started in the 80s, I think. And so I guess by that time, it was established. It, it, was, or, it was there any resistance to it from people in the neighborhood? Well, I mean, the neighbor, the, the, the immediate neighbors. Here's the thing. We were really, really good at, at trying to keep a contract with the clients. Don't congregate in front of the place. Yeah. Don't leave trash. You know, there and there was someone who would go outside every 30 minutes and make sure that the area was clean and, you know, mm. kind of just be like, you can't do, you know, you can't do any deals here. You can't congregate here. Um, you know, we worked really hard at pushing a positive sort of, this is a good thing for people. It will keep people from dying and getting sick, you know, and, and we will do our best within this area to, to make sure that they live up to this contract and they have to sign it or they can't join, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yeah. at some point, like when I was there, there were some clients who would come by to, you know, get their own stuff and they would shoo other clients away. They were like, nah, man, we can't do this here. We're going to lose this. If y'all hang out here, you know? Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I don't talk like a New Yorker anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I've been down in Mississippi for, for, for almost 10 years. So that was really good. We had a, we had a few clients who were very intent on, you know, helping keep our services accessible. And they helped police other people. Um, generally, I think, you know, either either people were sort of unsure about it. Or they, they, they at some point had decided there's always going to be a subset of the society that chooses to use illicit substances. Let's at least, you know, make it safe and accessible for them so that they're, you know, they're not going to die on my stoop. 
Yeah. I think, yeah. you know, that a lot of people just came around to that, to that mindset with it, you know? How long, you said you were on methadone? I was on methadone for actually a really short time. Yeah. It was a 30-day program. When I got down to about 10 milligrams and I had seven more days left, I, I just left the program and I did the last seven days at home. It was really about a month before I felt normal again. I used things like Advil and whatever little comfort meds I could to just sort of comfort myself through the process. Mm -hmm. And I took a lot of Unisom and Ad Advil PM to try to sleep because the first first three weeks I couldn't sleep hardly. I will say there was a couple of nights that I got super drunk because it was the only thing that would allow me to kind of like pass out and go to sleep and get yeah, a few hours yeah. of sleep. Not that I recommend that. I don't, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but I'm going to be honest about my experience because I wasn't on it that long. So after about a month, I started to feel like, okay, I can go out for short walks. I can, you know, maybe go to the corner store and, and get a sandwich. And then slowly it started to come back. I know the people who've been on methadone for, you know, five, 10, 15 years, it's going to be a year or more process before they, they feel normal, even if they taper all the way down, which is why I'm such a proponent of Kratom. Because while Kratom can create kind of a chemical dependency, it's, it's more akin to like a coffee withdrawal. You know what I mean? Yeah. Than it is to a hard drug withdrawal or, or a methadone withdrawal. I've stopped taking Kratom three times, right? One time I stopped it for, I think, a year and a half. The other times I stopped it for either a week or maybe a month. And each time it was like a runny nose and watery eyes. And that was about it for me. I know everybody's different. Everybody's got different physiology. They may experience differently, but, you know, it really should be mostly like a headache, a stomach, runny eyes, runny, you know, runny nose, because it's, it's in the coffee families. It's going to have that sort of, I mean, caffeine creates its own dependency. People stop drinking yeah. caffeine. They complain of all kinds, especially the headaches. So it was... Probably a period of after you stopped doing methadone to when you found Kratom of like, right. it looks so like I, almost 20 so years, right? We have to fast forward to 2016. I started reading about Kratom. I was going to ask what you, because you have all these chronic pain conditions and I was going right. to, you said you had been taking some Advil and stuff, but I'm just wondering how you dealt with it in the, in the interim. I mean, I had doctors, they gave me gabapentin, mm -hmm. you know, I, I I've been on and off muscle relaxers for years. They give me di diclofenac sodium, which is which is a type of NSAID. I mean, there's there's a, a million ways, but the diclofenac sodium, my body doesn't like it. Like mm -hmm. I literally just doesn't feel good when I take it, and I just I just sort of gritted my teeth and dealt with it. And I read about kratom. And the fact that it had been used for thousands of years in Southeast Asia is what really intrigued me. Mm -hmm. You know, obviously those people are probably chewing fresh leaf and this is a powder, but the, the, the studies that I read were really, really intriguing to me. Mm -hmm. 
And so in, in 2017, early 2017, because I, I do my research on everything first. I'm, yeah. At this point, I'm not going to ingest anything until I thoroughly have researched it seven ways to Sunday. I ordered some Kratom and I took a very small dose. I started, I think, with like one gram. And I think at my highest dose back then, I was at maybe 3.5. My kratom use changed late later on after I got the rheumatoid arthritis, but I started with a gram. I didn't really feel it, but I, I did feel less pain. And then I increased slowly half a gram here, half a gram there. I was hovering around two and a half, three grams for months. I tried 3.5 towards right before I stopped it there in the end of 2018. That was a little too much for me. Mm -hmm. um two to two and a half to three grams was my sweet spot two to three times per day kratom is interesting it's got a lot of these lesser alkaloids that we don't talk about much we talk about the metronine and we talk about you know the seven the seven oh yeah but we don't talk about the paethanine we don't talk about i think it's i'm i'm gonna butcher this word please <laughs> excuse me spectagolanine the these are the muscle relaxant out and being that I have cerebral palsy on my right side and, and cerebral palsy creates sort of a tight spasticness, those muscle relaxer alks were huge in helping me like sleep comfortably at night because I could relax my arm to a com more comfortable position because I can't fully straighten my right arm. Because I, mm. you know, walked around as a child carrying it crooked, like the typical palsy that you think about when you think about these types yeah. of herbs, palsy, cerebral palsy. Yeah. And I can't, my, it doesn't straighten. The ligaments don't straighten like that. But the paethanine, the spectagolanine, they were huge in just kind of relaxing that side of my body. You know, not significantly, but just enough where I didn't feel so tight and so spastic all the time. It's interesting because I never really thought about the muscle relaxant properties too much. And paethanine, incidentally, is also the alkaloid that they test for if you go to a place that actually tests for kratom. Some places do now. It's the paethanine that shows up. Uh, okay, That's yeah, that is a pretty for. common. It's a pretty common alkaloid. I think, other than uh, my tragedine, it's one of the four most right. abundant yeah, there's, ones. There's seven O, mitragynine, paethanine, yeah, and then it's either spectagolanine or spectacicillolanine. I'm I can't pronounce yeah. those words. Well, I talked. I have a scientist that I do a podcast with, and we do like a journal club, and he can't even pronounce it either. It's yeah, like they're just for writing and reading <laughs> When I look at lab tests, and I always look at lab tests before I purchase. You know, like, like yeah. Here's the thing: I'm only for 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 lab tested safe plain leaf kratom yeah you know yeah um i mean extracts if if you need that you, very very infrequently and and very low doses and always with plain leaf in my opinion mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. um but i just take plain leaf and and i look at lab tests and i look at the amount of paethanine in particular you know red green white and and i i, I tend to go at least especially for nighttime with a strain that's got a little bit of a higher percentage of paethanine, you know, mm -hmm. mid percentage to me isn't, isn't everything, you know, yeah. I mean, yeah. it's nice to know what, what it is. 
that's in there. But those are the ALKs that make the, the biggest difference for me. During the day, the mint and the 7-0 do help with my pain. Because when I got rheumatoid arthritis, I was I started in July of 2020 to begin to feel stiff, just super stiff all day long. Mm. The entire month of July, I went through waking up in the morning and going, you know, even going at bedtime, still feeling this awful stiffness. And it and it get it, it was to the point where a lot of days in July, I would get up, I would feed the birds, I would spend some time with them. And I would go back to bed. Mm. I would just, I would give up and go to bed. I went to the doctor. They tested me for a myriad of things. Um, lupus apparently is still inconclusive in order for them to diagnose me with the lupus. I have to be in the lupus flare when they, when they, when they take the test. So that's still a question in everybody's mind if I have lupus or not. But I came up with the RA in August of 2020, and they immediately put me on prednisone and Plaquenil. Um, I didn't see the rheumatologist until November. Um, and while prednisone is a great drug short term, you know, if you take it seven to 10 days, it can do some miraculous things. Hmm. Prednisone, corticosteroids long term do insidious things to the body. They take over your cortisol production. Hmm. And they just cause so many issues. I've now got issues with my blood pressure because of the, the I was on prednisone two years. The prednisone, I've, I've got, you know, stomach issues. My hair grew, started to grow in different and change mm. colors. I mean, everything that I, I got myself off prednisone right before I knew my rheumatologist was gonna was gonna start to bring that up, make the transition off of it. Like I about yeah. six months before that that point came, the next time I saw him, he was like, we need to talk about your prednisone. I was like, ah, I stopped that two months ago. He was like, you did what? I was like, look, I was like, I was like, I tapered. I was like, I tapered and dropped my dose five milligrams every two to three weeks until I got down to 10. And then I dropped two to two point five milligrams every two weeks until I was at two point five milligrams. Yeah, I was like, I know what a common sense taper is. I used the pill splitter; it was measured out properly. And he was amazed. He was like, nobody's ever done that. <laughs> That's what your experience using heroin taught you. Yes, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. It yeah. it, it kind of ties in, which is I have to say I haven't admitted to anybody in a long time about my history of being homeless and my early life. But I felt that it really sort of ties into my Kratom story, you know, and yeah. it ties into what I'm going through now. So I was on a drug called sulfasalazine, which they skipped over methotrexate for me because I'm contraindicated for a variety of reasons. It doesn't really matter. Um, I started on sulfasalazine. I'm still on the sulfasalazine but I'm also on a biologic called Arencia. Like, like my arth my rheumatoid arthritis is so aggressive. Normally when, when, when you start a biologic, they take you off the immunosuppressant. I'm going to be on the immunosuppressant, which actually Plaquenil and sulfasalazine are both immunosuppressants just work in different, you know, different mechanisms and the biologic probably forever because my, mm -hmm form of rheumatoid arthritis is so aggressive. I mean, I went from 
getting diagnosed in August of 2020 to having severe rheumatoid arthritis. And we just started 2023. Yeah. You know, I, I, I know women in my rheumatoid arthritis group on Facebook who, who, who have had it for 20 years and still in the moderate category. Wow. The rheumatoid arthritis is now in my stomach. So when I have flares, it's not just my legs and arms that hurt. There's three le- there's three pain different pains with rheumatoid. It's you get a stiffness that you just really you're just overly stiff. You feel like car- you know, a, a board, like a wooden board. Then there's like a fire pain, so there's like a burning pain that's like inside the limbs. And then at certain joints, there'll be like a pins and needles sensation. So there's three different things happening at once. Mm-hmm. And before, like I stopped Kratom in 2018, 2019, I didn't take it. Um, and then when I got diagnosed, it was the end of 2020 where I was like, this, you know, I'm not feeling good. These meds aren't going far enough. The sulfasalazine and the Plaquenil and the, the prednisone has caused me so many issues that I'm still suffering from. Let me go get my, my Kratom out of the closet and and see if it helps what's what's the reason you stopped in 2019 um i have chronic post-traumatic stress disorder mm-hmm. um severe chronic post you know stress disorder and i have generalized anxiety yeah and so i was in a car accident in 2012 like a really really bad one and i have now a reoccurring like fear of just right like i don't drive anymore but even yeah. riding in the car with someone else if they come to an intersection, the, even though I know logically that that car is going to stop because they have a red light, my, my body has like a panic. Yeah. Um, high traffic city streets are fine. Highways, bridges, tunnels. But I even have it a little bit on the local city streets. Okay, so like yeah. if, it's, if it's an intersection with four ways and even though there's, there's uh, stoplights there and everything, if a car kind of comes up to the, you know, to the intersection to our right, because I'm obviously the passenger and they come up kind of fast, yeah. a little faster than, than my brain really thinks that they should be, even though they do end up stopping, my body immediately has that trauma response. Yeah. Immediately. It just happens. I can't control it. So I started seeing a psychiatrist and he prescribed me Klonopin. So at the time I felt like the smart thing to do was to just stop the Kratom and and try the the Klonopin. I've actually since discussed the Klonopin with my psychiatrist because he tests for it because Klonopin is controlled. You have to be tested regularly. He was like, I'm fine with it. He was like, to be honest, he was like, you seem better with the Kratom than you do without it, with, you know, just the other meds. You seem like you're a little more centered. Um, okay. And now that I have the rheumatoid arthritis, he says, you walk better. He was like, you're not all hunched over and, and, and you're not grimacing in pain when you're, when you're walking into the office. Not all doctors think like that. Yeah. But... I'm lucky that that he does and mm-hmm. he's okay with it. I was like, let me try the clonopin. Yeah. I was like, let me stop taking the Kratom. So what I basically did is I was like I said, hovering around 2.5, 3 grams a couple times a day. Yeah. I just would drop 0.5 grams every week off of each dose. And then at one point, you know, I lowered the frequency. I went to two times a day and I was at a gram two times a day. And then I dropped my frequency to once a day. And then I stayed on once a day for like a month. 
And then I dropped to uh, half a gram one time a day. And I did that for like just about two weeks. And then I dropped off Kratom completely. And I just mm -hmm. the Clonopin do its thing, but it wasn't enough. And then I got the rheumatoid arthritis and I felt like the meds that they were giving me weren't enough. I said, I'm going to, I'm going to start looking into plant medicine. I'm mm -hmm. going to start looking into marshmallow root to help my stomach from the prednisone, thinking nettle for the arthritis and kratom. I think if used in moderation and used with a little common sense, it's a great addition to traditional medicine. You just, you have to be careful. You have to do your research and you have to look at your interactions, but uh, I don't have any issues. I take the sulfasalazine. I take the Plaquenil twice a day. I still take the Clonopin, but I've dropped it since now to one milligram once every 24 hours. And I take it at nighttime. And I use Kratom a couple of times a day. Right now, my dose, my high, my dose has changed throughout the 24 hours. So overnight, I'm only dosing once or twice overnight because I have a lot of pain when I sleep. It's mm. between 0. 0. 0.6 grams and 0. 0.8 grams. So I take that overnight. And then during the day, I'll start at 1.2 grams. And then generally by late afternoon, I'm having a lot of pain at that point because I've been doing stuff all day and, you know, trying to care for my house, my family, my birds, just be a part of life, be a part mm -hmm. of my community. I will take a dose as high as 2.4 grams. And then again, at nighttime, it drops back down 1.2. I try to keep it. I try to only take just as much as I need to feel okay. So that's only like a few grams a day. You're looking at lab results from the company you're buying from. Every single time. Yeah. Every yeah. single time. Which they should you all know? have. They should all they have. They should that. all yeah. have. Because here's the thing. Taking away Kratom from, it's important for addicts. I've been an addict. I've used drugs. I know what that's like. I know what it's like to be locked to something and you just you're, you're you're sick and tired of being sick and tired you just want it to end mm -hmm. you know but the alternatives are these methadone and suboxone which create their their own sort of chains and then the withdrawal from them is just really awful you know i was only on it for 21 days and i had a really awful awful withdrawal and i feel like Kratom's withdrawal, if you take it responsibly, you take it in moderation, yeah, you're going to have a bit of a chemical dependence, but it's going to be more akin to coffee. It's not the same thing. That's what, you know? that's what most people say, unless they say, well, I was doing 30 grams a day and I quit cold turkey or something like that. Right. Uh, well, I wouldn't expect that's that. That's the problem that I have with some of these people. They, they get into it thinking that it, it's an amazing plant and they don't read up on it at all. They just start taking it. Then they start taking these large amounts. Like I understand that if you're coming from Suboxone, that your starting point might be a lot higher than mine ever will be. Mm -hmm. But as you're off the Suboxone for, for six months to a year, Try lowering your dose over time. You know, try to get to a more reasonable between three and five grams. Yeah. You know, try to stick to a schedule where you're only doing it maybe three times a day. And you're not going to have a bad time. And then when you're ready to transition away from Kratom, 
you do a common sense taper. I mean, don't torture yourself. Don't do cold turkey. But get us, you know, invest in a scale. Measure your doses. Yeah. Drop down over time. And then when you feel like you've gotten it to a, a, a much more manageable amount of grams per dose, begin to reduce your frequency of dosing. I, yeah. I, know, I know people who've done that and have done it successfully. Yeah. And they required an allergy pill for the watery eyes and the runny nose and maybe a little Pepto-Bismol for their stomach for a week. That was it. I mean, I'm probably going to be taking Kratom as long as I possibly can because I don't know how much longer I'm going to be here. The rheumatoid arthritis is already in my stomach. You know, once it gets into your organs, it's sort of downhill from there. And I feel like I'm entitled to make myself feel comfortable at this stage. Absolutely. And I'm not doing anything illegal. I'm not doing anything illegal. I'm not abusing any prescriptions. I take my prescriptions as written or I take less. Like my psychiatrist said, I'm fine with you taking less of the clonopin. I'm going to write it for three milligrams a day. But if you take one a day, it's fine with me. I feel like I'm entitled to, to be comfortable and have things that soothe me. I'm entitled to have stinging nettle to sort of help settle my arthritis that her suda is a great off button for inflammation, which is in the same family as Kratom. I'm entitled to marshmallow root teas at night to settle my stomach. And yeah. a couple of doses of moderately of Kratom, I'm not hurting anyone else. And I'm, I'm making myself able to get out of bed, care for my family, care for my birds, and be a productive member of my community, even with all my medical issues. The other thing too is I live in Mississippi and there, yeah. there's a bunch of ban and backdoor ban bills on the table. Mm -hmm. um, I don't drive and I'm going to have to find rides to these hearings, but I've signed up to be a Kratom protector in Mississippi because I think that my story can add value to the thousands of other valuable stories out there with people's experience with Kratom. Definitely, definitely. And what do you think about all that? Uh, do you think, are there any like interests behind it? I mean, I know yes, the police it's, groups are going around. Absolutely here, where I, where I am, in my immediate area in central Mississippi. Absolutely the rehabs, the, the mm -hmm. clinics, and the, and the Suboxone doctors that are putting money in the pockets of politicians to get them to push. And then the, and then the, you know, the police or the sheriff's departments are saying it's basically like heroin. Yeah. Yeah. And if, and this backdoor ban bill that they've got going now where they want to put Kratom and supplements under the purview of the department of health, yeah. you know, if that goes through the department of health is just going to say, can't be sold over the counter. I think probably the majority of people in Mississippi are probably buying their Kratom over the counter. They're using it for valid reasons. You've got the guy, you know, north of me who's who has used drugs for 15 years and he's now clean and he's got a job. He's in his kid's life. You've got a lady somewhere else in Mississippi like me who's using it for chronic pain because because of the opioid crisis doctors won't prescribe proper pain yeah. relief yeah so kratom fills that need they're going to either ban it outright which i hope they don't and and i think that they probably can't but this backdoor regulation where they're going to have the department of health come in and say oh it's not safe it's just like bath salts and, and k2 and tianeptipine 
which we know it's not, yeah. they're going to stop it from being sold. And I'm not even worried about myself at this point. I'm worried about the newly clean addict who just found Kratom, Yeah, that they're going to end up going back to drugs. And I'm worried about the lady that has no idea that this might happen in a few months. And she's going to lose her means to be in less pain yeah, or pain free. And that's what hurts my heart. I've reached out to the, you know, the AKA, and I'm going to do my best to be a positive influence and a voice, you know, for Kratom. And I've written personally myself, written my personal story to every single senator that's in Mississippi. And I wrote the lieutenant governor. That's great. And I'm I'm also like, I've shared links for the South Carolina and the West Virginia bands, you know, to get people to comment on those as well. Yeah. You know, I'm not just worried about myself. I'm, I, I think that Kratom is a great tool and we've got so much good science behind it and it really needs to be available to people. Are there always going to be outliers that just can't control themselves? Yes. Mm -hmm. But you know what? That's a psychological them issue. That's not a Kratom issue. It's not an argument to outlaw it either because people die in car crashes because they're drunk every single day. Right. But they still allow alcohol to be sold and people still drive cars. That's what I'm working on now. But we're all sort of band together. We're family and we're trying to work towards you know, helping everywhere that there's that there's a ban bill on the table and trying to educate people properly about why Kratom is a good thing. Yeah, that's great. That's awesome. You're moving back to New York next year? Right. March of 2024. Um, here's the thing. I'm from New York. Um, I do have extended family here who I love very much. But the, the climate here is becoming too skewed against Kratom and outside of my extended family, I'm kind of alone here. I don't have a lot of people here. Mm. I want to go back to New York where I have family, you know, I'll be within three miles of family. I have an established network of friends up there. Yeah. So we're just going to move back in March of 2024, but I'll still advocate for Mississippi if I'm allowed to. I'll still advocate for South Carolina and West Virginia and Massachusetts and whatever. And these already banned states that we're trying to overturn and get back. I'll advocate for the federal KCPA. I'll advocate for the KCPA being passed in New York. Because like I said, I'm really worried. It's not just myself. I'm I'm worried for other people. I don't want this to be taken away from them. Because a lot of them may not even know it's coming until it happens. Till they go to the gas station and find out, or they go to the Kratom store and they find out, oh yeah, we can't sell that anymore. The Department of Health said no. And Kratom could make such a huge difference in the opioid crisis in this country. Absolutely. Like I just, it boggles my mind yeah. that they won't allow this to be a tool. They can still keep methadone and suboxone as options yeah. for people because not everybody's the same and different people need different options. But to take away a plant that's been tested yeah. for safety and can really help people lead normal, productive, pain-free lives just boggles my mind. I don't understand it. Yeah. You know, I have a good friend of mine. He lives in Louisiana. He stopped using Suboxone. He's got a full-time job. 
He's his family thinks he's doing great. They know he takes Kratom. I mean, he's a, a story of this is what positivity Kratom can do. Mm-hmm. I know other people in Tennessee and, and other states that are treating their depression or their anxiety or giving themselves a little energy and focus. And it's a good tool. It really is. There's so many valid reasons to use Kratom. We're going to work too locally, like trying to reach out to these stores and seeing if we can't put up flyers to let people know that these bandos are coming and when the hearings are and, you know, show up, you know, email, call your local rep, tell them your positive experience, how Kratom has helped you. I'll provide links for the science behind it if they don't understand it. A really good grassroots effort like we they had in 2016. I yeah. think we need that again. Definitely, definitely. Well, that was an autobiography and a half, man. Thank you, Bridget Williams, for sharing your amazing story. To support us, please share this on social media. Like, subscribe, rate, review, comment. Follow us on TikTok, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter. Music is Risey. The song is Memories of Thailand. The Kratom Science Podcast is produced by me, Brian Gallagher, for KratomScience.com. Take care.